So thank you for having us and for this conference. And uh, now we'll uh, read. I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. And we'll read the uh, scripture, which is uh, Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 to 9. And Matthew 9, 35 to 10, 1, and then verse 7. First, let me read from Matthew. And it's a great privilege to be... um, representing uh, them to you and now with the scriptures that we have uh, to read this morning and then uh, to focus upon in our meditation. Matthew chapter 9, sorry, Matthew chapter 13, 1 to, to 9. On that day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. And great multitudes gathered to him so that he got into the boat and sat down, and the whole multitude was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road. The birds came and ate them up, and others fell upon the rocky places where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. And others fell among the thorns. The thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, Some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. The title of the message this morning is A Drop Becomes an Ocean. The subtitle is The Kingdom's Harvest Principle. One seed becomes thirty, sixty, a hundred, or question mark. How much more might it one seed become? That's the harvest principle. And the theme of the conference is picture the harvest. Get to work and then enjoy the party. So we're especially talking about picturing the harvest this morning and getting to work. Let's go to the other passage. Matthew chapter 13. Sorry, Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 10, 1. We'll deal with this passage again later on in another one of the messages. But let me read it for you now. Verse 35, chapter 9. Jesus was going about all the cities and the villages, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Notice the things that he is doing. And then what he says. Let me read it again. Jesus was going about all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And seeing the multitudes, he felt compassion for them, because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples in that context, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. 
Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Now, there is no break in the original text. It goes right on. We have a chapter break in our Bibles. And having summoned, they evidently had a prayer meeting immediately after he told them to pray. Because he's the guru. He's the master. They must have had a prayer meeting right away. And he says, Amen. Prayer meeting's over. Having summoned his twelve disciples, he gave them authority, his authority, over the unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Verse 7. He sends them out, and as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the vision, the picture of what is coming. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's coming up very soon in its fullness. It's here, of course. It's always been here. But he says it's getting a fuller measure. It's at hand. And he says, uh, he tells them to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Before I pray, I'm going to do something that they do in India, usually in the churches there. You don't have to do it here. Your people, your preachers don't have to do it, but this is a cultural thing they do over there. In respect to the preaching of the Word of God, the pastor, if he hasn't done it by this point, they will sometimes uh, call him down and say, you didn't take off your shoes as a mark of respect. So I will do that now just as a cultural thing to remind you that this is God's word that we are listening to. And you usually hope you don't have a hole in your sock. (laughs) Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for your word. It is your word to us. In this, see, in this uh, word we see the Lord Almighty, high and lifted up upon his throne. We see a kingdom that is advancing, has always advanced. We see times that we have failed as people because we are sinful. We recognized our sin earlier in the service this, this morning. And we do so again. I am a sinful person, Lord. Forgive me. But somehow take your message from your word and by your Holy Spirit apply it to our hearts. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some years ago, I was traveling in the United States on one of these feeder airlines. And I picked the magazine out of the seat pocket ahead of me and was looking through that and this was I think in the 1980s now Americans are very fond of fads everything is a fad you don't listen to the same music or the same style of music for more than three years maximum at the at a time and uh, I don't hear about this particular fad that was going around at that time but I heard it on that time that we were in the states for a few months I heard it again and again and again I opened the magazine and there was an article on um, inner tennis. 
Now, some of you might remember that back in the 80s, they were, there was this fad that you have to picture yourself winning the game of tennis. And you picture yourself giving the smashing stroke and running to the volley and so forth. And you picture, the more you picture it, the more you actually become the player that is winning the game. And so this is a way of gaining success. You picture the future, if you will. The Bible does exactly that. Page after page after page. You can come down almost any place and it, the story is a moving story. It doesn't stand still. It goes from start to finish. And there is the end of the match, so to speak. And we, we read about it. We read about it in our opening. Let me read it again. When we started the service, it was taken out of the book of Revelation. This is the finish line. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. There he is. We have to look at him. In the morning, Sunday school hour, we heard from our brother about the greatness of our God and calling us to surmount the obstacles in our paths. It was, he's God. He's the Lord. And so he's sitting on the throne and to the Lamb, the one who made it all possible through the salvation that we just heard about. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might, sevenfold. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. What a picture, huh? And we read that there is going to be a harvest, the seeds. And some fell on the good, good ground, the soil. We read in another one of the parables, Matthew chapter 13, where it is compared the harvest, the, the, seed, uh, the good seed and the tares that grow up together. And the harvest, he says, is the end of the age. That's this, evidently this scene right here in heaven. And so it's a kingdom picture of how God the king is going to take charge once and for all. Satan will de be defeated. Sin will be no more. There will be eternal bliss. And that's what we're moving towards. Well, it started out in the Garden of Eden. Well, you know, sometimes I picture this... Well, let me, let, me go, let me back up again. You stand on the banks of the Ganges River, about 12 miles from the children's home, through the jungle, at the city of Rishikesh, the city that was made famous by the Beatles in 1968 and Mia Farrow who came to the city of Rishikesh on the banks of the Ganges River to meditate with His Holiness, the Maharishi. He introduced a TM, Transcendental Meditation, another fad that came and went, to the United States and to the West and the modern New Age movement was begin, begun, and the popularization of it at least. You stand on the banks of the Ganges River, it's just coming out of the mountains, and the, the river started way, 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 way up in the, in the high Himalayas. Actually, uh, we 
over there they pronounce it Himalayas because Him is snow and Alai is the place of. So a library is a place of books. Pustak is books and Pustakalai is the library. And so Himalayas is what they say. Anyhow, Himalayas. And it starts up in a glacier. And I hope some of you have a chance sometime to hike way up into these glaciers. And there it is, these magnificent things. And it starts one drop at a time from the bottom of the glacier as the glacier melts back in the summertime. One drop. It flows down the steep slopes there in the alpine meadows, 13, 12, 13, 11,000 feet flows down into little rivulets joined by others and they join together to, by the time they get down to the bottom of the cliff, down at the bottom, it's a raging torrent. In fact, there's a, one of my favorite waterfalls is right back there, right up against these high, high Himalayas. And uh, they're 12, uh, they're, they're 20, 15, uh, 20, 22, 25,000 feet, highest point in India. And then on into Nepal and Mount Everest, 29 plus. And uh, right there, this waterfall comes it's cascading over the cliff and it hits the, the ground so hard, it's almost like, uh, like Niagara Falls. It's not nearly as big and broad, but the whole ground is just shaking like that when the, when the water hits there. It's a spectacular thing. It's joined down in the valleys by other rivulets that have come down. By the time it gets to Rishikesh, it's just the, a, a frothing, foaming river. You stand at the banks of the river there at Rishikesh, you pick up, just absentmindedly, you'll pick up a, a stick from the side of, of, of the bank, like I've done many times, and you throw it into the water. You never expect that stick to go up. It's always going to go downstream. And it's joined by other rivers which come down like fingers off of the Himalayas all along the Himalayan range. Until finally it gets beyond Calcutta, or Calcutta as they call it now, out into the Bay of Bengal, and eventually into the Indian Ocean. A drop has become an ocean. So it's going to be the seed that gives good fruit. Some, 30, 40, 60. How many seeds are on a, a, a stalk, a, a head of, of wheat? Have you ever counted it? I don't know about here in the United States, but I picked up one of the hybrid seeds in the fields around the children's home there one time, and I counted how many seeds were in that one stalk. And on one plant of wheat, there are several stalks. And I counted on one head of wheat, uh, RR ikkis. Ikkis is 21. So it's RR was the strain that was developed by Pusa Institute, by some of these hybrid uh, grains that, they, that came up in the 1960s. And I counted it was, I think it was 32 or 33 grains on the head of, of uh, wheat. How many grains are on a ear of corn? Any idea? Now, pretty small corn in India. I, I counted again. I was interested just to find out. And I didn't actually count every single grain, you know, of corn. But I multiplied, you know, I counted a few rows and then I multiplied, applied how many rows and it came out to, believe it or not, just a small ear of corn, 600. So, one stalk of grain, one seed of grain becomes what? 30, 60, 100, or 600, or what? The mighty multitude. That's what we're working towards. Well, so we, we plug in anywhere. Let's plug in in this Bible. Let's, it's like taking from the beginning 
and you come down in the book of, Reve- of Genesis and it's all bliss. It's, it's, it's eternal heaven on earth. And God has made man and woman and he has said, uh, be fruitful and multiply uh, naturally with uh, genetic or carbon copies as we used to say or as they say in India, true copies of their mother and father. So, presumably, there will be lots of little Adams and Eves, right? They're made in the image of, of God. So, we have all these little Adams and Eves running around the garden and they're multiplying and they're uh, filling the planet and they're enjoying God's good creation. And in fact, at the end of it, he says it's very good. Not only good, but very good. And he's there in fellowship with one another and with God the Creator. And then in Genesis 1.28... The first ever kingdom work order. God says to subdue the earth and rule as caretaker or steward for God. Genesis 2.15 The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So there's gainful employment and caretaker responsibilities and privileges. God didn't make, you know, 500 million Adams and Eves separately. He made one Adam, one Eve, from the body of Adam. He blew into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. Then he gave him a dual responsibility. One is to procreate, to fill the planet and do something about it so that God could enjoy what he has made in this one being who will now multiply. And evidently before that, uh, that first order had a chance to be followed Uh, sin came into the world and everything turned totally upside down. And in the third chapter, we find out that sin has happened and and man and woman have eaten from the tree that they were forbidden not to eat. But I've often pondered, why did God do that? Why didn't he just make lots of Adams and Eves? He could have. But we find that he was working. Evidently, it was hard work even for God to do that. Sometimes I don't think of that way, that God, he can just speak the word, he can just snap his fingers and things happen. Uh, But still, it seems to have been hard work because he took the seventh day as, as as a rest day and ordered Adam and Eve and us to do the same thing. And so, uh, God takes them and puts them in the Garden of Eden and uh, they, they are given the work order. So, they are to work on behalf of God. Then sin comes into the picture and they are thrown out of the garden and God promises them that now in your work that will persist. You'll have to, you'll have to work to stay alive now. Now he says, not only will you, have you named everything, but you're going to work it still. You're made in my image. You're going to be working on my behalf. But there are going to be thorns and thistles that are going to get in your way. And there, there's going to be the... The, the, the disappointments in life that we heard about in the Sunday school hour. I'll still be with you. I'm still going to give you help to meet those, but it's going to be a lot tougher. But the picture is still to come. As you drive from Delhi towards the mountains, the Himalayan mountains, around about the city of Ruki, which is about um, 60 miles from the mountains, 50, 60 miles from the mountains, if there's a clear day, uh, now, these are the flat Gangetic Plains of the north. 
And if it's a really, really clear day, and my, I think probably 10, 12, at the most 15 days like this in the whole year. Otherwise, it's hazy and it's dusty and so forth. But you'll get a clear day, usually in March and October. And you can see, as you're driving, there are the range of the glaciers, the Himalayas, way, way, way off in the distance. And you don't see. You're at, uh, at less than 2,000 feet, and you're going up, 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 and you're, you're getting towards the mountains, you don't see the, the ridges that are right behind the children's home, which are 7,000 feet. The children's home is at 2,500, and right behind them is 7,000. But you see the high ones, which are at 20, as I said, 20, 22, 25,000 feet, and you get closer and closer and closer, and before long, as you get closer to these mountains, the, the high mountains disappear, and the close mountains, which are 7,000 feet, the first ridge back there, they become prominent and they're big. And I look at the Old Testament and it, it's that kind of a picture of the future. And you come down into Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, whatever, all the types and shadows of the law that are pointing forward. The stick is in the water, the, the drop is flowing to the ocean, there's nothing that can stop it. And God's purposes are going to be accomplished. And we're looking to the end picture and we're seeing the multitude around the throne of God praising him. And we say, God will still bring it to pass. There are going to be not only 30, 60, 100 grains from that one seed that was planted. There are going to be millions and millions and millions of them. And so that is what we're working towards. It's like uh, different cultures express things differently. Uh, for example... Um, you know, in a, in a comic book, you'll have the, the hero uh, punches the bad guy. And what does the comic book say? There's a little, one of those clouds that comes out and there's some words in there. In America, what does it say? When he punches the guy in the stomach, uh, what comes out of the bad guy's mouth? You know, Ugh. U-G-G-G-H-H-H-H-H exclamation point. Or, oof, you know, oh, F, 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 exclamation point. And in India, in a comic book, when he punches the, the guy, the bad guy in the stomach, it's dishum. <laughs> I don't know how they get it, but that's what they get. Dishum. He gives them a dishum, a biff or a bang. And uh, when a gun goes off, or, or let, let's, say, let's say you kick a dog. Well, I hope you don't. But if you kick a dog... Um, what, what does the dog do in America? Hmm? Y-E-L-P, exclamation. He yelps, right? Uh, in India, what does he do? He goes, that's what he does. Okay, so now you're standing there with a gun, with a rifle, and, and you're aiming at the bullseye. Uh, in America, what does that rifle say when you, when you pull the trigger? Bang, B-A-N-G, right? In India, it says, bang. So a machine gun or a uh, you know, semi-automatic or something, uh, in, in, here it'll go, in, in America, it goes bang, 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 bang. In India, it goes, okay? So you're standing and you're pointing at the, at the bullseye and uh, you pull the trigger and in India, it's going, bang. And when the bullet goes, you're standing about halfway to the, to the bullseye. You know, and you're, you're watching this whole thing. And the bullet goes past your ear towards the target. 
What sound does it make in America? Whiz, right? Whiz. There it's surr. Okay. It hits the, the tree, the bullseye on the tree trunk. What, is it, what sound does it make in America? Thud. Yeah, T-H-U-D, thud. Uh, in India, it goes tup. <laughs> okay, so here it's bang, whiz, thud. In India, it's tan, surr, tup. Yeah, pretty good, huh? That's the way they look at it. You, you come into the scripture and that's what it's doing. It's whizzing past you in the Old Testament. Abraham, what did he know of the whole picture? I don't know. But he didn't know quite a bit. And he believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Wow. Uh, we have so much more than Abraham had. We have that whole story. We can see everything that Abraham saw and way beyond. He didn't know about Jesus Christ. But he believed that through his seed, the promise that was given, there's the vision. He's picturing the vision. Somehow he doesn't know how. God is going to bless his seed. And he doesn't have any. He's 9,900 years old. None, nobody yet. And yet God is going to bless somehow. You see, he believes God. Wow. You say, my, oh ye of little faith. And I look at myself and say, boy, I don't have anything to match that. And yet I can somehow, I have to believe that when the picture of Revelation is given, the end of the story, the, tup, the thud that is in the tree, it is all going to, to pan out the way God said it was. And that's, the, that's the, the picture that we have, the harvest that is coming. But let's quickly, let's, let's go to one of the real stories in there. Let's come down in this picture in the book of Isaiah. And this is Isaiah who sees so much of, of, the, of the picture. I'll read you some of the picture that Isaiah will see. Uh, chapter 11. And righteousness will be the belt around his loins, the one who is coming, the branch, springing from the root of Jesse. And faithfulness, the belt around his waist. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb. Amazing, huh? And it's going to happen. It was a vision that God, Jehovah God, Gave to Isaiah. And the leopard will lie down with the kid instead of having to have these big Tibetan mastiffs with metal collars around their necks in the, in the Himalayas that, uh, that uh, are these huge, huge dogs and two of them can hold off a leopard. One of them is no match but they have these spikes sticking out of their collars so that if the leopard does get them by the throat he'll get the spikes instead. And they're ferocious things and all that but uh, they're no match for a, a kid is no match for that and they're, they're encircling the, the nomadic shepherds in the high altitudes of the alpine meadows of the Himalayas. And it says here that the leopard will lie down with the kid, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. A little boy will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze. The young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra and so forth. It will come about in that day that the nations will resort to the root of Jesse who will stand as a signal for the peoples and his resting place will be glorious. Again, does Isaiah really know what he's prophesying? And certainly not the whole picture. We do. We've seen it. We've seen the Messiah come to Bethlehem. We, we have the Christmas. It's passed as if there was a intermediate bullseye that all the Old Testament is aiming for, it's a paper bullseye, so to speak, and the bullet or the arrow 
that is being, uh, being shot goes unerringly through the center of that bullseye straight through to the thud at the other end where the other bullseye end right to the last picture when Je- our Lord Jesus Christ, Christ comes and one of our messages this, this, this uh, week will be uh, the, the trumpet will sound when the Lord will return and the thud is going to take place when it is all going to be the kingdom will be complete. And that's what we're looking forward to. And so this is what Isaiah sees. And you know the picture. Uh, but in chapter 6, uh, this vision of Isaiah is possible because of chapter 6. Chapter 6 is his call. And I want to compare that with your call and my call to, in the gospel. Because then God has a job for us. He doesn't just call us and let us laze away. He has given Adam and Eve, the human beings, made in his image. And in chapters, uh, chapter 1 of Genesis, verse what, 26, 27, it says four times in two verses that he is made in the image of God. Adam and Eve together made in God's image in the likeness of God in his image. Four times. And so in his image is also that he is a working creature, like God was. And then he has to rest, like God has to rest, on the seventh day. And so, here comes Isaiah, and he is now going to be called. But what's the first thing that happens? Chapter 1, chapter 6, verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death. Uh, so this is history. You can go back in the historical record and see that there was a King Uzziah. And in a certain year before B.C., before Christ, King Uzziah died. And so this is where Isaiah is is pegging it to a historical account. It's not once upon a time. It's not a mythology. It's history. Jesus Christ came to this earth in a certain year. He was born in Bethlehem. It's not a fairy tale. It actually happened. And so Isaiah pegs his call to a certain year. This was the year of my conversion, so to speak. I came to know the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on the throne. Remember our call to worship. God is sitting on his throne at the end of the story also. At the harvest time. Sitting on the throne lofty, exalted, with a train of his robe filling the temple. I want you to notice something that's happening in this story is that it is a holistic, a total picture of seeing God. Okay, Uh, how many senses do we have? Five. Uh, Everything that we know, there is nothing, I don't think, that we know that comes to us, our knowledge, whoops, sorry, our knowledge that we know, why did you jump? Because one of the senses was, uh, you know, a little too loud, right? The sense of hearing. Uh, Everything we know comes through one of these senses. And then we piece it all together. This is the world as we know it. Okay, so look. God is going to work in Isaiah's heart and life involving every one of these five sentences in this holistic experience. He sees the Lord high and lifted up on his throne 
with the train of his robe filling the temple. Spectacular. And I'm going to suggest to you and to myself that I need to see the Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, the God of Adam and Eve, the God of Noah, the God of Ruth, Rahab, the God of Esther, the God, our God, high and lifted on the throne, the train of his robe filling the temple, seraphim stood above, above him, and so there is another part of creation that we don't see in this temporal reality. That's beyond us. We will see it, but they're there, and I believe it. Because the Bible says it is true. And here, Isaiah sees in this vision, seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, with two he covers his face, with two he covers his feet, with two he flew. One called out to another. So he's hearing, right? He called out and he hears him calling out. He watches him, sees his, his mouth move, and he hears the voice. And he called out to the other. And what did he say? The primary qualification or, or quality of God is this, his holiness. And this threefold holy, holy, holy is repeated in, in Revelation at the end of the story. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Here's the end of the picture. Here's the great God revealed. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled. How did he know that? Well, he probably saw things shaking. But my guess is that he's standing on the threshold as he goes into the temple and he feels an earthquake. And he's moving up and down. And so he's feeling. So now he's had sight, hearing, and now feeling. The foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Well, he sees the smoke, I suppose, but he probably smells the smoke. You can't stay in a room with that smoke filled. And so he smells the smoke, and then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. So what do we have? We've had four of them. We've had vision, sight, hearing, feeling, and smell. Which one's left? Taste. Move on. Then I said, Woe is me. Now this is his response when he sees the majesty of God like this. But what, what is Isaiah's problem? Do you have a problem in really seeing God, really experiencing God? Really having this kind of foundational experience like is really an, almost a Garden of Eden experience from before the fall. He's going to have all five senses so impacted that it will move him thoroughly so that he can do something for God. Look what happened. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips. His mouth is affected. Okay? That's my sin problem. I've got my besetting sin, says Isaiah. I've got a filthy mouth, a tongue. I can't stop it. I can't. That's just who I am. Sorry. Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a, a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 
Here is God high and lifted up. I've seen him with my eyes. Have you seen him? Do you see him this morning? Like Isaiah saw him? High and lifted up. Holy, holy, holy. And all of this that's taking place in the smoke and the incense going up. And Isaiah says, I repent. In sackcloth and ashes, so to speak. And it's a total moving experience. He says, I can't, I'm not holy. I've got a filthy tongue, Lord. What is your sin? What is mine? And so what does God do? Then, there's nothing that Isaiah can do. He can't fix the problem. So now before he can be useful, there was a, at the children's home, after a volleyball match with one of the neighboring uh, villages, our children's home team came back and the coach of the children's home who himself had grown up in the children's home um, he had brought him and they had been defeated and uh, one of the boys especially he, uh, he said that uh, I was very upset very disheartened because this coach told me that I was a useless fellow in the midst of the game in front of everybody I missed a shot and he said oh useless fellow useless fellow and being useless was a real insult. And it upset him horribly and he cried. How can we become useful instead of being absolutely useless to the kingdom of God? The vision is there. But we haven't been prepared. So he says, God says, one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And I can picture this. I've seen many fires in the kitchens of North India, in the little huts, being started by the housewife who takes the, the coal from the little, uh, you know, three bricks. Well, actually, six bricks are stacked up. And there's a little chula, they call it, a little fireplace. And they've got some few twigs or maybe some dried uh, cow manure that is in there burning. And they will take a coal with tongs, metal tongs, and take it from here to start a second fire. And they will blow on this coal. And you see it glowing red hot as they transfer it to the second fire. That's what's happening in this picture. Now, where is it going to touch? Look, read on. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he takes it. I can just picture it. And he comes back to where Isaiah is cowering at the back there, seeing this vision, hearing everything, having this total experience. And he touched my mouth with it. Can you, can you hear it sizzle? Just as it sizzles. And you can just... You, that hurts. That hurts. That's what God says. He says, that sin has to be stamped out, has to be burned out. Has to be, it's going to hurt. Yeah. You've got to ask forgiveness. You've got to repent. Now what happens? Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. Forgiveness, relief. Now you and I are here in this church this morning. And we're looking to the, the harvest. That's the theme. Uh, we want to see the kingdom of God come. Here, 
in Biloxi and around the world. But it has to start in my heart. I have to see the Lord high and lifted up. I have to see the glory of God in nature, in people around me, in my neighbors. Uh, someone that I've had a hard time getting along with, perhaps. And I have to be praying for that person. And I have to see that person as if he or she is in God's kingdom around the throne of God, singing that, what a wonderful vision that would be, right? Picture the harvest of the one who has given you the most grief in your life, totally having a 180 degree turnaround and joining you in this picture, in this vision of God himself. Then God says to Isaiah, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? I've got a job. I'm not going to just go and do it, zap like that in his life. I'm going to do it through someone. And I want you to be the one. And you know, when we were in grade school, in first grade or second grade, the teacher might have said, uh, Johnny, what's two plus two? Or maybe, maybe didn't take Johnny's name. Just ask, what's two plus two? And Johnny puts up his hand. <laughs> you know, like that. I got He said, yes, Johnny. And then she says, uh, Johnny, what's, what's two plus two? He says, five. And everybody laughs, right? Because Johnny wasn't prepared. Sometimes we go off half-cocked. And we want to do God's job. Yes, 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 I'm going to do. But we haven't seen the Lord like Isaiah saw. High and lifted up sitting on his throne, in his majesty, in his purity and holiness. And then God has to deal with my sin. Now, he asks Isaiah, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Now I can imagine Isaiah starts putting up his hand. He's not quite so quick. He probably starts raising it a little bit like this. says, Here am I. Send me. And he said, Go. Go. And you can, just, you can just feel the relief. Isaiah says, ah, God's going to use me? The one who has the sin problem. God's going to use me? What a privilege, huh? What a privilege to go and to tell my neighbor, to pray for my neighbor, to be patient with my neighbor instead of flying off the handle at him. He says, go. Go and tell. Tell this people, and the message that he gives is not a real heartening one initially, but because God is in it, and God is sending him, and it is God's message is taken, taking, he knows that God's purposes will be fulfilled. And that there will be 30, 60, 100, 600 fold. That God is going to take place through you and through me right here and around the world. Shall we pray? Our Father, we do thank you so much. Thank you. That you are the one who calls us. You are the one who sends us. You are the one who has a job that you want just for me to do and for each one of us. But Lord, we too are sinful people, for our eyes have seen the Lord. He is high and lifted up. He is in his holy temple. And we are unworthy. But then, Lord, when you have purged our sin, 
when you have cleansed our hearts, when you have made, given us a total experience of yourself, how we thank you that now you want to use us. We pray that you will indeed do that this week. For we pray in Jesus' name.